Let me tell you a story. Podcast number 68. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago. Never mind it is a how truth long we You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. It's that time of year again when we have the opportunity to be patriotic by funding our government. We here at Let Me Tell You a Story want to do our part too, so we're letting you listen to this April podcast tax-free. Yes, you heard it right. We will waive the taxes on our podcasts this month only. Just fill out form IRSFAKE10 and include it with your return. Hi, this is Becky. I hope you enjoyed the commercial. Steve hasn't treated listeners to an ad for many months, so we thought it was time to throw one in again. We also haven't read any kid chuckles lately. So we'll try to treat you with a handful before this episode of Let Me Tell You a Story is finished. I'm going to start us off with a couple chapters from Hilary Johnson's latest book, Stone of Asylum. Hilary is one of my favorite Idaho authors, and in my opinion, this is her most unique book yet. The first in a new series called Dance of the Crane, Stone of Asylum has something for everyone in it. Adventure, history, martial arts, shape-shifting, gold fever, greed and intrigue, not to mention a wide variety of characters and a surprise around every corner. Chapter 1 from Stone of Asylum San Francisco Shipping Docks, California March, 1863 It smelled of home, wet marsh, fish, and salty air. Yiba pushed a clump of hair from his eyes. Home, but with an underlying herbal scent that kept him grounded in the foreignness focused on his task. Gulls cried overhead, drowning the sound of water lapping against the bleak shoreline. He didn't belong. With shoulder-length hair, no part of his scalp shaved, not to mention the beginnings of a beard, he didn't blend well. Even wearing tong clothing, he was the same outsider here in this land fabled to be a gold mountain that he had been in the celestial kingdom in China. With each bellow from the ship's crew, startled seabirds took flight. As a wave, they'd alight and land in the tidal inlets. Pelicans and stilt-legged birds fished in the swampy areas near sand dunes. A deep honk echoed from a strange whiskered creature that looked too fat and awkward to climb over the rock where it perched. The boat docked. This had to be the expected shipment of girls. His own voyage, 97 days in the belly of a ship, was a floating hell. If his sister was in one of those crates, 
he'd have a hard time restraining himself. Forcing thoughts of punishment aside, Yiba breathed deep again. Fish, salt, herb. He stooped, hoping for a benign-looking stance and posture, the stance of a Tong peasant, not a Korean warrior. Amama-san waited with a jangle of keys around her thick waist. The crates definitely held girls. She was here to oversee them. And he was just another, waiting in a sea of men, eager for a glance at a girl. The metal nails creaked when they were yanked from the wooded slats. Girls stumbled from the crates with muscles that never earned sea legs and blinked at the foreign terrain. A bit of commotion erupted when a crate opened to reveal a dead girl. Nearby, a younger girl child stumbled, and a man righted her with a tug on her hair. He let go abruptly when she turned her pretty face to him. He must be calculating her worth. Iba's hand moved to the lump under his clothing and felt for his sister's wansog. It still hung from a leather strap. Arabaz said the stone sometimes gave her a sense of people's motives. Iba suspected it gave her more that she could read thoughts and foresee intentions. He also suspected that was why she removed it. Pretty Ara Ba would be worth a fortune, even without the wansog she left behind. But if she had kept it, maybe she could have escaped during the last three months. Surely, if her skills as a fighter had been enough, she would have found him by now. The last crate was emptied, and he did not sense her. He'd wait at the docks again tomorrow. He would wait as many tomorrows as were needed to reclaim her. And when he ran to her side, she would be near her stone. Nothing could stop them if they fought together. He straightened. The joints in his back released with soft, popping sounds. He was ready. The stone would be returned to the gadu, and he could fulfill his task of bohoja before any more damage was done. The Tong men who emerged from steerage stumbled about, taking in sights and sounds. A man called out to them in a fragrant mountain accent, and several congregated toward his voice. Another man called in a fourth district dialect, and a larger group followed him to where men waited in wagons. The travelers, disoriented by sunlight and stable ground, walked directly to the first comforting sound, dialects they recognized. Iba lost count of the number before he realized the ship carried nearly twice the usual passengers. Gray fog seeped in from the bay. Some days the sky was clear enough to see the islands nearby, but other days, like today, the entire city was shrouded in mist. The Mamasan heard of the girls on foot while men called out from the sides in Cantonese, both praise and insult. Their heads appropriately bowed, the girls walked without expression. Iba ran ahead of the wagons carrying men and arrived first at the Sixth Company's quarter, where labor brokers and Chinese officials would soon direct the fortune seekers. He squatted at the entrance, positioning himself to look up into each girl's face as she followed in line. Not that he needed to. If his sister drew near, the stone would grow warm. Fifteen girls, none of them Korean, none of the last gadu, Guard of the Wansog, none his sister. He rose and walked toward the office of his informant, Lo Chi. Lo Chi would tell him the next ship's estimated arrival. He angled toward the entrance, trying to appear aimless. A bulky man leaned against the door, blocking it. 
A polished hatchet hung from the man's belt and his cue protruded from under folded arms as though he'd hastily taken post at the door. Yibai walked past, searching the round face of the hatchet man. Was he a bystander or a guard? Behind Yiba, an auctioneer called out as the first girl was stripped and put up on the block. The crowd grew. The hatchet man's eyes did not flicker to the auction. They rested only on Yiba as he shook his head with a curt warning. A guard then. Yiba subtly directed his gate to the gambling parlor next door. He would enter Lo Chi's building from the back. But the hatchet man beat him there. His impressive girth now obstructed the rear door. The man's eyes were narrow-set under his large forehead, but most unusual was the darkness of his skin. "'He's busy,' the man said. A plea for mercy came from inside, and one part of the hatchet man's smile lifted higher. His weapon protruded from his left hand at a 45-degree angle from his side. He held it firmly, without the tenseness of a beginner." Good, thought Yiba. He was arrogant in his weapon. I'll speak with Lo Chi anyway, Yiba said, deliberately provoking. The man swiped the hatchet diagonal. Yiba flinched back. Dirt shifted beneath his feet, creating the sound of gravel tumbling. He sprang and twisted. Yiba landed a jump-spinning axe kick on the hatchet man's collarbone. It cracked under his heel. The hatchet man released his weapon, fumbled, and reached for it. Yiba thrust kicked his solar plexus, knocking the wind and remaining fight out of him. As Yiba passed the fallen hatchet, he flicked it up and plucked it from the air. Fireworks had begun, meant to muffle the auction from the foreign devils. The commotion in the quarter disguised his confrontation as well. The interior was warm. It smelled of piss and sweat. The first thing he saw in the dim light was Lochi's head and hand, resting in a pool of blood. A dismembered finger sat to the side. Even though Lo Chi was unconscious, his other hand rested in the grip of a gap-toothed man with a short cue. Yiba threw the hatchet. The gap-toothed man died quickly, his surprise ex- expression divided in half by the borrowed weapon. A rumble of laughter emerged from the shadow. A man reached his hand out into the light, his fingers flicking invitation. In the pause of fireworks, his hand stilled as though he balanced air in his palm. Yiba stepped sideways out of the meager window light. Lo Chi is a friend of mine, he pointed to his unconscious informant. He could have been a friend of Ling's, said his opponent. For a moment, each warrior studied the other from the shadows. The man was small and nodded, suggesting a good balance of strength and speed. His hand never wavered in offering an imaginary cup of tea, but it was a distraction. His right hand began to move. Iba sprang forward, used the man's hand as a platform, and hooked back a kick. The muscled man rolled underneath to avoid the blow. Iba landed on a chair, one foot on the seat and one on the back. When he stood, his opponent pulled something from the cuff of his Tangzong jacket. The metal object was the size of a railroad spike, but flat and sharpened to a fine point. A thin red rope attached to the end of the spike disappeared inside. Iba took a deep breath. He would have to move fast to avoid a rope dart. Discordant music joined the explosions and pops outside. Iba shifted weight to the back of his chair and kicked it forward just as the man flicked his wrist and flung the spike. 
The chair cracked, metal separating the wood into shards. He dodged the next few strikes, counting. Iba waited for the third in the series, his opponent's longest strike, if he'd judged the pattern correctly. Iba charged, accepting some of the rope against his arm, he grabbed the cord. He pulled, using a man's own momentum. The assailant lost balance, his head jerked in surprise, and Iba struck down with his heel at the base of the skull. The force shoved the man's nose into the wood floor. He did not move again. Iba hurried to his informant and thrust the dead man with the hatchet between his eyes out of the way. Lochi moaned as Iba wrapped the stub, stopping the flow of life. You will live. Lochi reached for a cracked pair of spectacles and lifted them to his eyes. He laughed a painful huff and stared through the split glass at Iba. Who are you? Really? What makes you think I am not what I said? Oh, I believe you are called Iba. You're looking for your sister, a 14-year-old stolen while you traveled through China. Iba grabbed a discarded jacket and threw it on the desk to sop up the pool of blood. All true, he helped Lo Chi to a chair near the desk. What I don't believe is that two wealthy orphans traveled alone in a foreign land for pleasure during a famine. Lo Chi flinched like a wave of pain had overtaken him. What were you after? And what haven't you told me? Yiba and his sister had been looking for a scroll. He'd found it, but lost her. Why would you want the burden of that knowledge? Yiba fixed his gaze on the two dead men. Lo Chi sighed and reached his good hand to a paper. He flipped it over and held it out. Araba's perfect face filled the center like a prostitute license or a wanted poster. Hanja trailed down the side, offering $10,000 if she were brought to a man named Ling. $10,000 in a land where average men hope for $1 per day. I think maybe she is more than a treasured Korean sister. Those men said, Pst! Pst! Lochi stopped mid-sentence. There was movement behind at the back door. The hatchet man's face and a black straw retreated, disappearing between the closing door and frame. Iba dropped to his knees and pulled a tiny metal shaft free from the back of Lochi's shoulder. Lochi struggled and breathed out a long, controlled exhale. When he began to cough, his skin's color drained. Don't exert. Iba cradled the informant's head as a picture of his sister fluttered to the floor. Lochi's bloody thumbprint marred the corner. The informant's face relaxed and even morphed into delight while life trickled away, his eyes resting on a silver dart that protruded from Yiba's chest. It's true, Lochi said. Yiba pinched the second dart from his chest and folded it into his hand with the one that was killing his best informant. Yiba nodded. You have died for a greater good. Do not let Ling find it, Lochi whispered with his last breath. Yiba would not. Chapter 2 Martin Homestead, five miles outside Florence, in the Idaho Territory. April 1863, the day my first life ended. I was 14. Eldora, said Mrs. Martin, I don't want you here when the preacher and his son arrive. Mrs. Martin's cuspate nose flared with her inhale. Before releasing air, she harped on toward her daughter. Cordelia, 
You're so close to the back of that chair, it looks like you might be leaning. Only the words escaped, and her nose tightened like her lips. No, Mama. Despite her denial, Cordelia stood, smoothed her skirts, and sat again, this time rigidly straight. Mrs. Martin's head turned slowly, taking in the unfinished parlor with scorn. Only when she faced me again did she finally release her breath. It came out miserly and took a moment to finish. Eldora? I hadn't realized she wanted me to leave immediately. Right away, ma'am. I turned to go. Why, your father insists on keeping a crippled Swede and his daughter. Mrs. Martin glanced my way, probably to ensure that I still listened. But I didn't acknowledge. I already knew how she felt about Papa and me. Who else would I talk to out here in this godforsaken place? said Cordelia. Watch your tongue, Cordelia. I'm told John William Mort is a scholar and a gentleman. Mrs. Martin's words faded as I weaved my way toward the scents of gamey poultry and cinnamon, searching out Miss Mabel. Our cook stood buxom, hovering over the board and cook stove. Are they here then, lass? You mean Preacher Ward and his son, the, the scholar and a gentleman? A crumble of the apple pie crust proved too tempting. Not yet, I finished with a lick of my fingers. Keep your bloody hands off, Eldora. Miss Mabel clipped my descending hand with her beefy freckled one. A gentleman and a scholar? Hmm. So that's what they call a coward now? Coward? Papa told me all the time to ignore Miss Mabel's gossip, but her words were like the flaking edge of pie crust, which I still eyed. Miss Mabel talked as she worked. Left Gettysburg because he was afraid to fight, he did. I answered, Man of the cloth. Maybe they don't believe in fighting. The war had so many names. We were too far north to call it the War of Northern Aggression, and not even a state to call it War of the States. To us, it was mostly just a war where they said kin fought kin. No, said Miss Mabel, the preacher's son. He's a copperhead. My first thought was copperhead meant a cuss word, and I tried it out quietly. She used lots of color to paint her speech. I was only an artist in my mind back then, for Papa's sake. Bullocks. This war will add freedmen to the line of celestials taking our jobs. I'd saved her a few tidbits as well. I heard he was a federal who rode around looking for deserters, that he loved his job too well, and rarely did anyone make it back for a hanging. I leaned in. That's because he killed them all. She leaned, too, at first, and then squinted up her eyes and straightened. You did not hear that. I did, and it's true. I also heard he stole a blue coat and wore it to raid his own people. Bullocks. I brushed pretend crumbs from the board and smiled under her attention. The Martins had let me dither in a vague dual role, playmate to their Cordelia and daughter of an indentured man. I couldn't frolic all day. Usually during Cordelia's lessons, I'd shell peas or something instead of reading, writing, and ciphering. If she was lonesome, I'd sit with her and she'd read to me. But I knew someday I'd have to work as much as Miss Mabel and Papa. My 15th birthday was mere weeks away, and I sensed change coming. When I thought Miss Mabel wasn't looking, I reached toward the pie again. There was a swish and her spoon lifted high. Quickly redirecting my hands to the tea set, I finished arranging the tray to avoid bruises. Miss Mabel could give me worse pain than the aching hunger in my stomach. 
Papa once told me Miss Mabel was what a woman became without a man to temper her extremes. It was funny to think Cordelia's mother was tempered. I would have liked to share the thought with Miss Mabel, but wasn't sure she'd appreciate it as much. The jingle of a carriage sounded through the open kitchen door, so I left our cook with my best Mrs. Martin's voice. That duck a bosom smells divine. I paused until her eyebrows shot up in expectation. So much better than the dugs we ate last week. Her cackle added height to my steps as I leaped from the back porch. Papa reached his left arm up to the bridle of a stallion. He kept his right stump close to his side, and in the pause the horse took advantage. The stallion reared, and I ran to become Papa's second arm. I stroked the beast's muzzle when we had him calmed, and a young man's voice drizzled from the attached carriage. It's true. There were two passengers, and the older man answered with a derisive, Wild lands. He grew up from his seat, up, up, needle-thin and pale as gossamer, until his gray form blocked the sun. He seemed no less tall to me after he alighted from the carriage. "'Idaho territory now, father,' the preacher and his son looked past us as though searching a visible territory line. "'Welcome, preacher ward,' Mr. Martin's round body crowded me from the guests. As they shook hands, I stifled a giggle at their contrast. One man shaped like a tree and the other like a bush. The son was handsome. John William Ward descended. His eyes brushed over Papa and me as placidly as a landscape. But after he reached the ground, he walked directly toward us. I could not hide. Blazes. His debonair mustache was thick for one so young. I moved behind my papa with the belated wish that I'd tuck my hair into a chignon or something beside a childish braid. Young Mr. Ward removed his hat, and while still angled toward us, he glanced at Mr. Martin with arched brows. He didn't look a murderer or a rogue. Even travel-worn, his hair was pomaded to a fine sheen. He looked every bit the part of a vagabond gentleman. Yes, well, Mr. Martin mumbled. Papa cleared his throat. We both looked down. We were out in godforsaken Idaho territory, yes. But did he expect to be introduced to a groom? Daniel Alberg and his daughter. Mrs. Martin was right. Her husband always had an extra measure of kindness where my papa was concerned. I couldn't help it. I curtsied dramatically, like I used to practice with Cordelia. Young Mr. Ward extended his right hand to Papa. After a pause, my father settled the strong fingers of his left hand into the offer, rather than hold up his maimed arm. Papa kept his right stump pulled between us. He never showed it, if he could prevent it. Young Mr. Ward stepped toward me with his hand out as well. Did he think I'd place my fingers in his for a kiss? Immediately I wished I'd taken the offer, wondering if his fingers were smooth or like my papa's. Come along, son. The preacher tapped a long black walking stick twice on the ground and hooked the intricately carved top to his forearm. The silver handle was the shape of a fowl head, including beak and comb. It probably cost more than my papa's indenture was worth. The preacher walked with shoulders pinched back and chin held aloft. Young Mr. Ward said something, and Mr. Martin laughed, but the words were so soft they escaped my hearing. Papa's whistle drew my attention from the men heading toward the house. The stallion nickered back to my papa. Let me help, I reached for the reins. You don't need to smell like a horse, Papa said. It was true. 
Cordelia lifted a whirlwind if I brought in the scent of stables on my clothes. I'll just watch them, Papa. He didn't answer, but I could see by a nearly imperceptible smile that he wanted my company. I knew if I tried, I could get him to show his teeth. I ran ahead and pushed the barn door wide, then leaped up the stable wall. After landing, I straddled the divider between the stalls. Eldora, Papa scolded. He wasn't smiling. Sorry, Papa. I pulled a leg back over the wall so both were facing the same direction, like a lady. Not enough. Get down. You're a young woman now. He dumped a can of fodder into the manger. Your poor mother would have had a fit. We both paused at his uncomfortable choice of words. Then we pretended he hadn't said them. Pitching myself headlong, I reached for the roof beam. At first I was afraid I'd overcommitted, but my hands landed on the rafter and gripped tight. Papa gasped, but soon after the lovely rumble of his laughter flowed out. I smiled back at him. He said I had to be strong as a man to make it out here. He kept laughing as he left to tend the preacher's horse. Miss Mabel's scream was enough to make me lose my grip. I fell and landed on my hands and knees. I'd pulled a few slivers out of the beam and studied their dark shavings in my pink palms. What? I thought you hanged yourself, she bellowed through what almost looked like a sheen of tears. With Papa right there? He and I exchanged looks before he reached for a watering can, chuckling, and headed out the back way. Scare me worse than one of your fits. Miss Mabel pushed both hands into her bosom as if to press down and restrain her beating heart. Don't speak of that. I glanced back to make sure Papa didn't hear and scratched at the painful splinters. I don't have time to run around looking for a near-grown woman acting like a ruffian. She reached to swipe at my backside with her wooden spoon, but I darted away. What are you doing out here, then? I picked up my hand while I kept an eye on her distance from me. They want Miss Eldora to attend to dinner. Continuing with Treasure Island, I'll read a little bit from the end of Chapter 19. The rest had long been up and had already breakfasted and increased the pile of firewood by about half as much again when I was wakened by a bustle and the sound of voices. Flag of truce, I heard someone say. And then, immediately after, with a cry of surprise, Silver himself. And at that, up I jumped and rubbing my eyes, ran to a loophole in the wall. Now, chapter 20, Silver's Embassy. Sure enough, there were two men just outside the stockade, one of them waving a white cloth, the other no less a person than Silver himself standing placidly by. It was still quite early, and the coldest morning that I think I ever was abroad in, the chill that pierced into the morrow. The sky was bright and cloudless overhead, and the tops of the trees shone rosily in the sun. But where Silver stood with his lieutenant, all was still in shadow, and they waited knee-deep in a low, white vapor that had crawled during the night out of the morass. The chill and the vapor taken together told a poor tale of the island. It was plainly a damp, feverish, unhealthy spot. "'Keep indoors, men,' said the captain. "'Ten to one, this is a trick.' Then he hailed the buccaneer. 
Who goes? Stand or we fire. Flag of truce, cried Silver. The captain was in the porch, keeping himself carefully out of the way of a treacherous shot, should any be intended. He turned and spoke to us. Doctor's watch on the lookout. Dr. Livesey, take the north side, if you please. Jim, the east. Gray, west. The watch below, all hands to load muskets. Lively men, and careful. And then he turned again to the mutineers. And what do you want with your flag of truce? He cried. This time it was the other man who replied. Captain Silver, sir, to come on board and make terms, he shouted. Captain Silver? Don't know him. Who's he? cried the captain. And then we could hear him adding to himself, Captain, is it? My heart, and here's promotion. Long John answered for himself. Me, sir, these poor lads have chosen me, Captain, after your desertion, sir, laying a particular emphasis upon the word desertion. We're willing to submit if we can come to terms and no bones about it. All I ask is your word, Captain Smollett, to let me safe and sound out of this here stockade and one minute to go out of shot before a gun is fired. My man, said Captain Smollett, I have not the slightest desire to talk to you. If you wish to talk to me, you can come. That's all. If there's any treachery, it'll be on your side, and the Lord help you. That's enough, Captain, shouted Long John cheerily. A word from you's enough. I know a gentleman, and you may lay to that. We could see the man who carried the flag of truce attempting to hold Silver back. Nor was that wonderful, seeing how cavalier had been the captain's answer. But Silver laughed at him aloud and slapped him on the back, as if the idea of alarm had been absurd. Then he advanced to the stockade, threw over his crutch, got a leg up, and with great vigor and skill succeeded in surmounting the fence and dropping safely to the other side. I will confess that I was far too much taken up with what was going on to be of the slightest use as sentry. Indeed, I had already deserted my eastern loophole and crept up behind the captain, who had now seated himself on the threshold, with his elbows on his knees, his head in his hands, and his eyes fixed on the water as it bubbled out of the old iron kettle in the sand. He was whistling to himself, Come, lasses and lads. Silver had terrible hard work getting up the knoll, what with the steepness of the incline, the thick tree stumps, and the soft sand. He and his crutch were as helpless as a ship in stays. But he stuck to it like a man in silence, and at last arrived before the captain, whom he saluted in the handsomest style. He was tricked out in his best. An immense blue coat, thick with brass buttons, hung as low as to his knees, and a fine laced hat was set on the back of his head. Here you are, my man, said the captain, raising his head. You had better sit down. You ain't a going to let me inside, Cap'n? complained Long John. It's a main cold morning, to be sure, sir, to sit outside upon the sand. Why, Silver, said the captain, if you had pleased to be an honest man, you might have been sitting in your galley. It's your own doing. You're either my ship's cook, and then you were treated handsome, 
or Cap'n Silver, a common mutineer and pirate, and then you can go hang. Well, well, Cap'n, returned the sea cook, sitting down as he was bidden on the sand. You'll have to give me a hand up again, that's all. A sweet, pretty place you have of it here. Ah, there's Jim. The top of the morning to you, Jim. Doctor, here's my service. Why, there you all are together like a happy family, in a manner of speaking. If you have anything to say, my man, better say it, said the captain. Right you were, Captain Smollett, replied Silver. Duty is duty, to be sure. Well, now, you look here. That was a good lay of yours last night. I don't deny it was a good lay. Some of you pretty handy with a handspike end. And I'll not deny neither, but what some of my people was shook. Maybe all was shook. Maybe I was shook myself. Maybe that's why I'm here for terms. But you mark me, Cap'n. It won't do twice by thunder. We'll have to do sentry go and ease off a point or so on the rum. Maybe you think we were all a sheet in the wind's eye. But I'll tell you I was sober. I was only dog-tired. And if I'd awoke a second sooner, I'd a caught you at the act. I would. He wasn't dead when I got round to him. Not he. Well, says Captain Smollett, as cool as can be. All that Silver said was a riddle to him, but you would never have guessed it from his tone. As for me, I began to have an inkling. Ben Gunn's last words came back to my mind. I began to suppose that he had paid the buccaneers a visit while they all lay drunk together round their fire, and I reckoned up with glee that we had only fourteen enemies to deal with. Well, here it is, said Silver. We want that treasure, and we'll have it. That's our point. You would just as soon save your lives, I reckon, and that's yours. You have a chart, haven't you? That's as may be, replied the captain. Oh, well, you have. I know that, returned Long John. You needn't be so husky with a man. There ain't a particle of service in that, and you may lay to it. What I mean is, we want your chart. Now, I never meant no harm to you, myself. That won't do with me, my man, interrupted the captain. We know exactly what you meant to do, and we don't care. For now, you see, you can't do it. And the captain looked at him calmly and proceeded to fill a pipe. If Abe Gray, Silver broke out. Avast there, cried Mr. Smollett. Gray told me nothing and I asked him nothing. And what's more, I would see you and him and this whole island blown clean out of the water into blazes first. So there's my mind for you, my man, on that. This little whiff of temper seemed to cool Silver down. He had been growing nettled before, but now he pulled himself together. Like enough, said he, I would set no limits to what gentlemen might consider shipshape, or might not, as the case were. And, seeing as how you are about to take a pipe, Cap'n, I'll make so free as to do likewise. And he filled a pipe and lighted it, and the two men sat silently smoking for quite a while, now looking each other in the face, now stopping their tobacco, now leaning forward to spit. It was as good as the play to see them. Now, resumed Silver, here it is. You give us the chart to get the treasure by and drop shooting poor seamen and stoving off their heads in while asleep. 
You do that and we'll offer you a choice. Either you come aboard along of us, once the treasure shipped, and then I'll give you my affidavit upon my word of honor to clap you somewhere safe ashore. Or, if that ain't to your fancy, some of my hands being rough and having old scores on account of hazing, then you can stay here, you can. We'll divide stores with you man for man, and I'll give my affidavit, as before, to speak the first ship I sight and send them here to pick you up. Now you'll own that's talking. Handsomer you couldn't look to get, not you. And I hope, raising his voice, that all hands in this here blockhouse will overhaul my words, for what is spoke to one is spoke to all. Captain Smollett rose from his seat and knocked out the ashes of his pipe in the palm of his left hand. Is that all? he asked. Every last word, by thunder, answered John. Refuse that, and you've seen the last of me but musket balls. Very good, said the captain. Now you'll hear me. If you'll come up one by one, unarmed, I'll engage to clap you all in irons and take you home to a fair trial in England. If you won't, my name is Alexander Smollett. I've flown my sovereign's colors, and I'll see you all to Davy Jones. You can't find the treasure. You can't sail the ship. There's not a man among you fit to sail the ship. You can't fight us. Grave air got away from five of you. Your ship's in irons, Master Silver. You're on a lee shore. And so you'll find. I stand here and tell you so. And they're the last good words you'll get from me. For in the name of heaven, I'll put a bullet in your back when next I meet you. Tramp, my lad. Bundle out of this, please, hand over hand, and double quick. Silver's face was a picture. His eyes started in his head with wrath. He shook the fire out of his pipe. Give me a hand up, he cried. Not I, returned the captain. Who will give me a hand up, he roared. Not a man among us moved. Growling the foulest imprecations, he crawled along the sand till he got hold of the porch and could hoist himself again upon his crutch. Then he spat into the spring. There, he cried, that's what I think of ye. Before an hour's out, I'll stove in your old blockhouse like a rum puncheon. Laugh by thunder, laugh before an hour's out. Ye'll laugh upon the other side. Them that die'll be the lucky ones. And with a dreadful oath, he stumbled off, plowed down the sand, was helped across the stockade, after four or five failures, by the man with the flag of truce, and disappeared in an instant afterwards among the trees. We're now in Chapter 19 of Winds of Wyoming. Just a little backstory. In the last couple chapters, the heroine... Kate Nielsen, uh, was thrown from a horse and, after quite an ordeal, ended up in the hospital. And here in Chapter 19, she is still in the hospital. Kate switched off the television, rearranged her covers, and turned on her side. Nearly asleep when the phone rang, she squirmed across the bed to grab the handset. After a breathy hello, she heard Mike's voice and was instantly awake. He hadn't come to see her, but at least he called. Hey, Kate. Hey to you. You sound tired. Did I call too late? 
No, I'm awake, even though I've had a busy day watching clouds float by on the Weather Channel. He chuckled. How are you, really? Better. I wheeled around the ward ten times today. That's great progress. I wish I could have seen you. I'm glad you didn't. I'm lousy at corners. If I'd made it to Rollins today like I wanted, I would have taken you outside outside and wheeled you all over town. You wouldn't have had to worry about corners. She grinned. That would have been nice. Really nice. I'd like that. Maybe another time. Soon, I hope. I miss you and your sweet smile. Her heart skipped a beat. I miss you too, Mike. After a moment of silence, she asked about his dog, though she dreaded his answer she had to ask. He's still at the clinic, Mike said, but hanging in there. Dr. Hall sounded more hopeful today. But you don't sound hopeful. I'm encouraged about Tramp. It's just everything else going on around here. That's why I didn't get down to see you today. The moment we put out one fire, another starts. You had fires at the ranch? She pictured Ramsey creeping between the cabins, torching them one by one, and celebrating the hysterics from behind a tree. Not literal fires, and come to think about it, we didn't actually squelch any flames. What are you talking about? Oh, it's not good news. After a moment's silence, he continued. I had to call the sheriff again. She longed to plug her ears and tell him she didn't want to hear it. But she had to know. She was the source of the Duncan's troubles. What happened? She heard him take a breath and release it. I'm really sorry to tell you this, but you'll hear it sooner or later. Someone killed Trudy. What? She nearly yelled the word. Not your little calf. Your little calf. His voice was so low she could barely hear him. We found her with a slit throat this morning. Kate sat up. Poor baby. She squeezed her eyelids together to hold back tears. I hope she didn't suffer. Her death was instant. No sign of a struggle. I consider telling you we put the calf back with the herd, but I couldn't lie to you. Plus, you'd have learned the truth when you returned, if not before. I can't go back to the ranch. She pulled a tissue from the box on the nightstand. Why not? I'd just be in the way. She dabbed her eyes with the tissue. The office doesn't have room for two wheelchairs, especially with my legs sticking straight out. And I couldn't help anywhere else around the ranch. That's not how we see it. Mom wants you to stay in our guest room. A sob escaped Kate's mouth. Well, you don't have to stay with us, Mike said, if you don't want to. He sounded chagrined. You and Laura are too good to me, she took a ragged breath. I was thinking about Trudy, another helpless, innocent animal slaughtered for no reason. The instant the words left her lips, jumbled snapshots from the abortion clinic flashed through her head. Gray waiting room, white sheets, silver handcuffs. The beige uniform of the impassive officer at her side. The pale green scrubs of the doctor, a doctor whose attempt at compassion was as empty as a pimp's promise. She swallowed. Who was she to grieve the death of an animal? She'd slaughtered a helpless, innocent child, her child, without shedding a single tear, and for no reason other than to satisfy prison officials and distance herself from Ramsey. Mike released a long sigh. The sheriff's department is on it. Maybe they can figure this mess out. 
when they get past blaming us. I wish you didn't have to go through this. She could save the sheriff some time, but she wasn't ready to connect the dots between herself and Ramsey. So what else happened at the ranch? More bad news. We don't know if there's any relationship between the two situations. But cash was stolen from Mom's desk. Her heart began to pound. Her fingerprints were all over that desk. She collapsed onto her pillow. That's terrible. Did they get much money? Several thousand. Mom hadn't had time to make a deposit. So you called the sheriff about that problem, too? The deputy was still on the property. He plans to interview the entire staff. I don't think he'll bother you in the hospital, but just in case, I wanted to warn you. Mom and I believe the thief was an outsider. We have total confidence in all our employees, even though Manuel is a prime suspect in both crimes. She stared at the ceiling. The department would forget about Manuel when they researched her background. How long, Lord? How long before she ended up behind bars again? Kate? Are you there? I feel like I brought bad luck to your ranch. If you think that, then we brought you bad luck, too. That guy in your cabin, your broken leg, the snake. He paused. Manuel told you about the snake? No. Tanner saw you and Manuel bury something, but didn't know what it was. After we found the dead calf, he thought there might be a connection, so we dug it up. Oh. She couldn't think of anything else to say. Why didn't you tell me about it? She swallowed. I found that snake coiled in the bathroom sink, and I wanted it out of there fast. I didn't mention it to anyone else because I thought it might worry your mom or scare your guests. It was just a bull snake. That's what Manuel said, but in my mind, a snake is a snake. It was huge. Did Manuel kill it? No, it was already dead. How did a dead snake end up in your bathroom sink? The window was open. For several seconds, all she heard was his breathing. So, a sick snake had just enough strength to crawl up the wall, through the window, across the top of the toilet, and into the sink to die. She rolled onto her back. I assume someone found a dead snake and decided to play a prank. Maybe my bathroom window was the only one open. Too bad she couldn't convince herself that's what happened. I'll have to think about that, and about who might have dropped a dead black-footed ferret in the dumpster. Oh, thought Kate, so that's what it was. He went on. The black-footed ferret is on the endangered species list. The ranch could get a huge fine or worse for killing it. Uh-oh. She should have had Manuel bury the ferret with a snake. I've heard of ferrets, but not black-footed ones. How would Ramsey know about an endangered species? Was he trying to set her up for federal charges? What did you do with the ferret? The sanitation crew hauled it away. To be honest, I'm hoping the weasel's buried way down deep in the landfill. And that's the end of that subject. Should she tell him how the ferret ended up in the dumpster? Even if she did, it wouldn't answer the crucial question of how it arrived on Whispering Pines' property. Does your mom know all this? She knows about the money, of course, and the calf, but I haven't mentioned the snake or the ferret. How's she doing? Kate ached for the Duncans and the trauma they had to endure because of her 
How much more trouble could she bring into their lives? Her doctor walked into the room, a nurse at his side. The doctor is here, Mike. I better go. I hope he gives you a good report so you can come home. I miss you. A bunch. I miss you too, Mike. Bye. Home. It would be so wonderful to call the Whispering Pines home. To call Laura mom. To call Mike. But that was a pipe dream. Here are a few kid chuckles. It's always fun to hear kids talk. Two-year-old Brady's newest phrase at the time, No, no, never again. Toby said, Know what Grandpa Lyles calls Grandma Lyles? He calls her honey, but not like in the jar. Brady, after awakening to potty late at night, said, Mama, lay down me. Enough room. Becky cooked spiral-shaped noodles one night. Just as we were about to eat, a friend came to the door for Toby. He said, No, I can't play. I'm going to eat boing-boings. <laughs> I always loved that one. When we took Elisa to her first day of school, she was eager to get moved into her desk. But Toby and Brady clung to her, crying. Kiss! Hug! She was so embarrassed, and they were so determined. Toby said, We're staying down in the world five days to wait for all the kids in the world to grow up into adults. Then we can go to heaven. Well, there you go. There's your theology for today. And that is going to take care of us for today. We appreciate you listening. As always, thanks for joining us. Until next time. Happy reading. Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at beckylyles.com. Steve and Becky like to hear your thoughts, and they encourage authors to send stories and other short prose and poetry for them to read on the podcast. You can learn more about Becky's books by visiting beckylyles.com or by searching for her books online. Her nonfiction titles can be found under the name Becky Lyles and her fiction under Rebecca Carrie Lyles. All of her books are available in both print and ebook formats. Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom are also offered in audio format online. That's all for now. Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.